Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Howard Hoxter, Anish Chagpar, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Hoxter is joined by Drs. Ruth McCorkle and Dina Schulman-Green for a conversation about oncology nursing. Dr. McCorkle is the Florence Shorsky-Wald Professor of Nursing and Professor of Epidemiology, and Dr. Schulman-Green is a research scientist at the Yale School of Nursing. Dr. Hoxter is a professor of medicine and medical oncology and associate director for clinical sciences at Yale Cancer Center. Can you start by telling us a little bit about what you do and how you and when you got in, involved in this field? Well, it's uh, really wonderful to be here, Howard. Um, I've been an oncology nurse since the early 1970s, and of course, uh, initially, diagnosis of cancer was really associated with the death sentence, and it's greatly changed today. We really couldn't talk about cancer openly, and today we talk with patients about goals of care. Uh, of course, not all ethnic groups and, and diverse populations um, are as open about talking about it, but we've made a lot of progress. Uh, since those early years, uh, and it's been really, during my lifetime, uh, really exciting to see. Yes, um, so I, I come to oncology nursing via the route of psychology and gerontology. So gerontology is the science of aging, but I realized as I was studying it that what I was most interested in was serious illness and helping people uh, to cope with serious illness uh, over the course of the care trajectory. And so I came to Yale to study with Ruth um, to learn about what palliative care is and how patients and family caregivers could use palliative care to help them manage the challenges of cancer. Well, that's a very big topic, and obviously our perspectives on that have really changed over the years. I mean, as in practicing medical oncologist who gives chemotherapy, my kind of point of view is that the best palliation is when we can shrink the tumors because usually people feel better, but then we have to deal with the side effects, and sometimes we don't get to shrink the tumors. So how do you take all that into account, and how do you help us, how have you helped us kind of deal with the, the way we interact with our patients? So palliative care is described as an extra layer of support that's provided by a multidisciplinary team of healthcare providers that includes physicians, nurses, social workers, chaplains, to provide a patient-centered uh, care. 
Um, so the, one of the hallmarks of palliative care is that it's provided to the patient and the family caregiver as a unit to help them to manage pain and symptoms and to provide psychosocial, spiritual, and emotional support for families as they deal with cancer. So part of it is about controlling the cancer or shrinking the cancer um, if that's possible, but part of it is learning to live with cancer and the effects of its treatment over time and to help people to be able to match what's important to them in their life, their personal values and goals and cultural preferences to the plan of care. And so the team working together uh, the palliative care team and the medical team uh, working together can really uh, maximize the effects. Uh, often uh, the palliative care team will help the patient stay in cancer treatment. And that's really our goal, to get the, the cancer treated as long and as effective as possible. So by combining forces, uh, we often see these positive effects um, where the patient do, does much better by this team approach. Yes, there was actually a study uh, performed in Boston where patients were randomized to treatment alone or treatment plus palliative care, and the group with the palliative care actually did much better. Dr. Tennell. Yeah. Yeah, uh, interesting. We did a similar study in the early 1980s, um, randomizing patients with lung cancer to three groups, and we actually got similar results to Dr. Tennell's. But um, at that time, uh, palliative care was not even known. Uh, we, we were still dealing, dealing with uh, hospice care and uh, trying to get reimbursement. And uh, palliative care really evolved in the 1990s and uh, has the, taken The world off. was not ready for your message. I don't think so. <laughs> but the, the really important part of that uh, in research is, is you're wanting to get common results across studies. Uh, to uh, reinforce uh, the effects to show the differences. So um, the more studies that we can do with different uh, populations, Dr. Temmel's study was also done with lung cancer. Um, Dean and I have done a, a, a somewhat similar study with ovarian cancer, and we also with uh, uh, Peter Schwartz got very positive results with that. So this palliative aspect, uh, whether you call it quality of life and include healthcare utilization by how much people go to the emergency room or how long they're in the hospital, uh, whether they get referred to long-term care, uh, the point is you're trying to reduce uh, that burden on the family. And it also has this uh, other effect of reducing the cost, cost burden. Uh, so it's, uh, these outcomes of uh, looking at the effects of cancer and cancer treatment are tremendously important. And so tell us what your research has kind of shown about the palliative care team. 
what what do they usually what does the team usually consist of and how does that um, provide the support to the patients and the families? Well, uh, I've been uh, doing uh, research since the um, late 1970s, been funded by NIH uh, consistently, and uh, the main part of our intervention is directed by the advanced practice nurse. Um, an advanced practice nurse is a master's prepared clinician who has a bachelor's and then a specialty uh, of two years training in oncology. And she's a member, he or she is a member of the specialty team. And we have uh, uh, many of those at SMILO. I think we have 12 specialty teams that have uh, advanced practice uh, providers in them. We did a cluster design uh, in our last trial where we randomized the units instead of the patients, the clinics. And we were really able to show that the advanced practice nurse helped to coordinate, uh, navigate patients through, get them seen by uh, palliative care, uh, quickly, or the cardiac uh, oncology team, or the dermatology team, any place um, uh, that person was having side effects. And this coordination with uh, the oncology team and then other specialties, uh, because so many people have comorbidities, uh, they'll have uh, not only cardiac problems, uh, but you want to involve the primary care physician. And the reason uh, that you want the primary care physician, because he often sees the other family members associated with the patient, so he also can help to support them in a positive way about how the patient is doing. So uh, it's really critical uh, that the advanced practice nurse uh, coordinates among the team members in a way that uh, recognizes early what the patient's problems are so that they can be um, minimized uh, and maybe even uh, uh, stopped. Uh, what the reason that this works is the relationship that that nurse forms uh, with that patient. Uh, you'll find that the patient often is either calling the nurse or texting the nurse or communicating with them, often after hours, and uh, is able to get a response uh, very quickly. So these are very special relationships. So you're talking about the <coughs> APRNs that specifically work yes. in the palliative care well, team? Well, and, and on the team, uh, uh, Marianne Davies, mm -hmm. uh, Vanna Des, I mean, all of them, uh, oh. they're, they're wonderful, uh, a number of them. Um, that well, there's no question about that. We wouldn't be able to function without our yeah. APRNs in, yeah. in every team. So, but... Uh, while they're while they're certainly uh, you know very valuable members of the treatment team, 
and help can kind of help bridge some of the stuff. There, there's a separate palliative care team often, yes. and so who who do you usually find in such palliative care teams? Well, within our own system, uh, we have Dr. Jim Capo and or Morrison and uh, uh, Resley uh, Black. Black, and um, the PA, social worker. And what's been really wonderful is the the addition of palliative care from the inpatient unit uh, to the outpatient unit now, in which it's uh, becoming more integrated into routine care uh, with the increase of referrals. And which one is to have so much demand that they uh, we have to expand? Yes, that's that's uh, uh, you know obviously the outpatients are a lot of them, and many of them can use the additional help. I mean, certainly, I think in the main treatment teams, we are, we welcome having extra people to help us with managing patients' problems. So one of the challenges for patients and family members to know what palliative care is because very often people mistake palliative care as being hospice care. And palliative care to be most effective really should be started upon diagnosis of a serious illness so that there is time to have these very personal and important conversations about um, what the situation is Uh, what kind of treatment um, best fits the patient's values and personal goals, um, and and what it's going to look like from from here on out. Um, What are the expectations? And those are conversations that need to happen beginning early and then to be ongoing throughout the patient's care trajectory. So so time is really important. Um, So that's why the need to start at diagnosis, and that's why people need to know that palliative care is not for people who are at the end of their life, but upon diagnosis of a serious illness. Right. So I think that's a very important concept. We're talking about palliative care here as people who are going to help us manage the symptoms of the disease and and the symptoms of the treatment. And it's not necessarily just end-of-life care. That's a different thing altogether. Well, thank you very much for that interesting discussion. We're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about oncology nursing Uh, with Dr. Ruth McCorkle and Dr. Dina Shulman-Green. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, But it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Smilo Cancer Hospital's tobacco treatment program operates on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. 
All treatment components are evidence-based, and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Howard Hoxter, and I'm joined tonight by my guests, Drs. McCorkle and Shulman Green, who are oncology nurses, and we are discussing caring for caregivers and palliative care. So um, let's, for this portion, really focus more on the caregivers. So uh, I think that uh, it seems as though the unsung heroes of medical care today, especially as we tend to shorten the length of hospital stays and push people out of the hospital sooner, are the family members and the caregivers who really take on a lot of duties, including nursing and things that they really necessarily haven't signed up for or thought they had signed up for. So tell us a little bit about what's happening with the caregivers today. So there are about 2.8 million family caregivers in the United States, and they are most often adult daughters of the care recipient. There is some variation by cancer diagnosis. So for example, among women with breast or ovarian cancer, most often the family caregiver is their male spouse or a partner. Um, so what kinds of caregiving tasks do they engage in? Um, so there are very practical tasks of managing medications, of transportation to appointments, of meal preparation. But then you get to these other perhaps more challenging tasks of helping to manage pain and other symptoms, of providing emotional support, of providing spiritual support of helping patients to activate the resources they need to be able to have a high quality of life. So we can talk about this list of tasks, but really what it is when you're engaged in caregiving is thinking about how you're going to have a good day. What needs to happen for the family to have a good day? What does a good day look like? You hope that the patient isn't going to have any pain or other burdensome symptoms. You hope maybe they're going to be able to eat something. You hope they're going to have some meaning in their day, some joy in their day, be able to get some things done on their to-do list. You hope as a caregiver you're going to be able to get some of the things done on your to-do list. Um, and that's what a good day is. And it's a day that for people who aren't dealing with cancer care, um, it's something they take for granted. Um, but for someone who's managing cancer, that's what a good day looks like. Um, so the idea is how do we enable family caregivers to be able to make that happen? How do they support the patient and how do they support themselves to be able to have a period of good days? Mm -hmm. Some challenges to making this happen are that most caregivers don't have training in how to be a caregiver. They don't even recognize much of the time that this is a new role for them because they see this as a role that they've always had. That if they're you know, a parent or a spouse, that they've always taken care of this person. But suddenly, taking care of that person within the context of a cancer diagnosis 
is a different way of being and yet the same way of being with them. But they don't have training in how to provide basic nursing care. So this is a real challenge for some people who have not been in this position before or don't have you know, medical or nursing training or maybe don't have um, the personality to, to be a caregiver. It's a difficult role to be in. Um, so, so what are some of the resources that can help out these caregivers who obviously are taking on a big burden? Well, one of the first things we have to do is identify who the caregiver is. Uh-huh. And you not only, you can't assume it's the person necessarily that lives with them. Uh, in one of our studies, we found that, in fact, uh, over 50% of the people who got cancer were taking care of someone who was already ill in their family. Right. We've so the health of the person you live with makes a huge difference to their ability to take care of the person with cancer. So we need to know who could be the caregiver. And once we identify that person, do they want to be the caregiver? Are they local, live with the person, or are they coming from a distance? Then we have to know whether they have any special skills to care. Um, and most importantly, we have to know whether the patient is willing to accept the care from that person. So these are negotiable uh, situations. And often patients get discharged with a piece of paper that says to do this, and the person who picks them up is handed it. You're it. <laughs> yes, I think we don't really formally kind of identify this caregiver person or give them you know, necessarily, if they're not there, they may have kind of missed the whole educational experience. And if it's a long-term situation, it's important that we check in with them regularly. Uh, Cancer treatment now has uh, evolved where uh, much of our chemotherapy and immunotherapy are going to oral agents. And the importance of uh, medications, medication reconciliation of their uh, medications, making sure they don't interact with each other, mm-hmm. uh, is absolutely essential. And this is an important role for the caregiver. I, I kind of have the feeling like, as you said, many times it's the spouse or partner, but for the older individuals whose spouse is maybe not around anymore or they're too ill themselves, it tends to be the daughter who lives closest. Yeah. And so it seems like to me at least. Yes. So has that been your kind of, is that what your research shows as well? And, and then what, how do they balance their families and the, taking care of their par- a sick parent. So that's one of the key challenges that family caregivers face is how to integrate these new tasks of cancer caregiving into what is often an already busy life where people have these competing roles 
um, at work, of caring for children, of uh, perhaps caring for aging parents, and now there's perhaps yet another person who they need to provide care for. So people often feel very conflicted in those roles and don't feel like they're doing the kind of job that they would like to in all of those roles, which is why activating resources and getting support for themselves is so very important. I think one of the biggest challenges for family caregivers is being able to accept help. Um, often family caregivers feel like they need to perform the role entirely on their own, and they want to be sort of supermen or superwomen in that role. Um, and they think that they're doing a good job if they can do it independently. Um, and one of the things that I would urge is for people to really use the resources around them. Very often there are other family members or friends um, and, and community services that are available to help alleviate some of that burden from caregivers. Can you give us some specific examples of what kind of resources might be available? Um, well, one of the things that comes to mind immediately is support groups for caregivers so that they can speak with others who are in a similar position as they are. Um, so that can be very supportive for some people, but it is also another appointment on their calendar, and people need to decide if that is a form of support that they can integrate into their day well. Um, community services um, like seeing a counselor, like going for a massage, um, you know, like meal preparation or transportation services can provide different kinds of support that can take even a little piece of, of the caregiving uh, job off of their plate. And visiting nurse services are helpful? Certainly, and I think some people um, very much like to have visiting nurse services, and I think it varies by people's insurance if they're able to have those sorts of services, and can they have those services for enough hours of the day that they would really uh, find useful. Right. So those are things that, that need to be coordinated. And so how can caregivers tap into these resources? How's the best way for them to kind of access these? Well, there's two uh, major national organizations, Cancer Care out of New York, and then the wellness community, uh, Cancer Support, which uh, their headquarters are in, in Philadelphia. And both of those groups uh, have online uh, support groups, so you don't have to actually uh, leave your home. Um, Cancer Support Community also has a weekly radio show that you can call in and ask your, ask your questions about the kinds of problems you experience. And they have local chapters. Uh, unfortunately, we don't have one here in Connecticut, but the neighboring states do, and the national is very responsive. Um, there are local groups that help. Uh, uh, the American King Society still helps with rides. Uh, it's out of the regional office, uh, but they can be arranged for people. Uh, there are also dietary uh, groups that help patients uh, so that their nutrition is uh, kept adequate uh, during cancer treatment. So it's a matter of going online, and as people uh, get older, they get 
more likely to get cancer. So there's another layer of resources uh, if you're Medicare age. Right. And, I mean, here at Smilo, we have social service people and nutritionists and all the teams and also in palliative care. therapy. Yeah, so those things are, um, you know, certainly can be accessed through their regular appointments. Mm -hmm. Which is another way that the palliative care service can be of help because they can assess what the needs are of both the patient and the family caregiver and direct them to the resources that will help to address those needs. So, and, and what have you in your research on this have discovered about, you know, caregivers taking care of themselves? It seems like they kind of tend to put that uh, at the bottom of their priorities, but that's all not necessarily the best approach, right? Well, it's certainly a neglected area and uh, one in which uh, additional research is, is needed. And again, this is the importance of the oncology team working together. Um, uh, the physician in charge of the case may be having a very important de- treatment decision uh, discussion about the patient, but the social worker, the nurse, uh, may uh, be really supporting the family, telling them what a good job they're doing and getting them plugged into a mental health uh, provider for some breaks. Dr. Ruth McCorkle is the Florence Shorsky Wald Professor of Nursing and Professor of Epidemiology, and Dr. Dina Schulman Green is a research scientist at the Yale School of Nursing. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.